Hey folks, this is episode 40 of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray, but the main part of this episode is prepared and presented by science and technology communicator Sean Ellis. You may remember Sean from his regular appearances on the Pod Delusion podcast, or his recent reporting of the Winchester Science Festival. A couple of months ago, I noticed an uptick in internet chatter about TWA Flight 800. If you do a Google search for the accident, around half the links are to conspiracy theories about TWA being shot down by US armed forces, which may give you some indication of where this episode is going. Conspiracy theories tend to feed off each other, and the disappearance of Malaysia Air Flight 370 clearly reignited more general discussion about airline disappearances. I was swamped myself with other things at the time, so I asked Sean to look into it, with the idea of putting together an episode contrasting the imaginary shootdown incident of TWA 800 with some real examples of airliners destroyed by missiles. A week later, MH17 was shot down, making the whole thing far more topical than I'd intended. Later in the episode, we'll talk about Soviet interceptors shooting down Korea Airlines Flight 902 and Flight 007, and USS Vincennes shooting down Iran Air Flight 655. First though, here's the report from Sean. This July saw the 18th anniversary of the crash of TWA Flight 800, possibly the first such crash to get the full internet age conspiracy treatment. Before we look at both the official and unofficial theories of what happened, let's look at the facts of the flight itself. On the 17th of July 1996, a TWA-owned Boeing 747, designated Flight 800, took off from New York's JFK airport at 90 minutes past 8 in the evening, just after sunset. It was bound for Paris, France, carrying 212 passengers and 18 crew. Just 12 minutes later, off the southern coast of Long Island, the aircraft was seen by numerous witnesses to explode into one or two large fireballs and plunge into the ocean. Everyone on board lost their lives, making it one of the USA's worst ever aviation disasters. Weather conditions were benign, and although several civil aircraft were near enough to witness the breakup, none was particularly close. So what happened? In the four years between the accident and the official report, the witnesses talked to the press and other information became public. Inevitably, speculation was rife and several popular theories about the crash gained considerable momentum. In any situation like this, of course, one of the avenues to explore is terrorist activity. As well as the Safety Board's technical investigation, a parallel criminal investigation was launched by the FBI. Eyewitnesses were therefore interviewed initially by FBI officers, who were looking specifically for evidence of foul play. Most of the eyewitnesses reported the same thing. Their attention was caught by an initial fireball in the sky, which then rapidly separated into two downward-moving fireballs, which then either struck the ocean or went below the local horizon, depending on the position of the witnesses. A significant number of witnesses, however, reported that they'd seen a moving streak of light immediately prior to the fireball event, and some of these interpreted it as a missile. Now, a light in the sky is a very tricky thing to interpret. None of the visual clues that we rely on for distance estimation are present, and any things which are present are likely to be relatively close. 
This introduces a large expected error into some features of the eyewitness accounts. However, a number of people were able to pinpoint their position and the apparent position of the fireball relative to recognisable landmarks. Since the observers were spread out along the south coast of Long Island, it was possible to determine that the sight lines intersected in the approximate position of the accident, which lends them additional credibility. Not all statements were this good, of course. It's also clear from the transcripts of the FBI interviews that the interviewers used leading words, such as missile and impact, while trying to clarify information about time, speed, angle and position of this feature. Now, this is not entirely surprising, given that the FBI were already in the frame of mind of investigating a possible terrorist attack. It does, however, act as a primer for the witnesses to interpret a streak of light in a particular way. What also emerged relatively quickly was an analysis of the radar station logs. These showed a number of civil aircraft, identified by speed and their transponder codes, and also some slow-moving tracks without transponder codes, consistent with boats in the immediate vicinity. Also, there were some military manoeuvres happening in the Atlantic. Could a US Navy boat be the source of the missile? The US government would surely be embarrassed enough by a friendly fire incident to try to cover it up. This was the leading contender in the space of competing conspiracy theories for a long time, although subsequent investigations made it less and less likely. The military manoeuvres were only 60 miles away, but that was earlier in the day. By dusk, the nearest activity was 160 nautical miles south. All missiles on the boats in those manoeuvres were accounted for. Suspicion therefore shifted to the boats nearer to the crash site. Could someone from these ostensibly civilian boats be responsible? How easy would it be to get a shoulder launch missile to 15,000 feet or thereabouts? Several internet commentators maintain that this is still the most likely explanation to this day. The US authorities took this seriously enough to actually conduct a test firing using real shoulder launch missiles on a test range. Observers were placed from 2 to 14 miles from the missile launch site and then three missiles were launched under similar lighting conditions to the day of the accident. All of the observers reported that the missiles were clearly visible but only in the first 7 to 8 seconds of flight, with a second 7 to 8 second period of invisibility until detonation. This is not consistent with the accident eyewitness reports, which stated that the streak of light was visible all the way into the fireball. To see some more reasons why it probably wasn't a missile, let's look at the official report. Published in August 2000, the 425-page accident report is very thorough establishing the sequence of events based on a rigorous investigation of the recovered wreckage and flight recorders and re-evaluating the eyewitness testimony obtained by the FBI. One thing that struck me reading this report was the rigour with which everything has been documented and investigated and the dedication of the investigators. Just recovering the wreckage took 10 months. During this period they identified three separate zones of debris. Progressing along the ground track of the aircraft, what was designated as the red zone comes first, and consists mainly of relatively small pieces of wreckage from a short section of the aircraft immediately in front of the wings. The small yellow zone is next, consisting of the forward section of the aircraft, including the flight deck. 
The final green zone is larger again and contains the rest of the aircraft, including the wings. This suggests an initial event which badly affected the midsection, followed by a structural breakup of the aircraft into two. This is consistent with the eyewitness reports. The initial fireball would have broken into two as the front and rear sections descended separately. Both the data and cockpit voice recorders were recovered, together with essentially all of the aircraft structure. Personally, I find this a phenomenal result, and one which leaves few loopholes to be explained by conveniently missing sections of aircraft. In particular, the investigators put together a reconstruction of a 93-foot segment of the midsection. From this, the largest missing piece from the skin of the aircraft was only about one square foot in size, and even in this spot, the underlying structure was recovered and examined. The investigators used a number of different techniques to work out the order of events. For example, it's fairly obvious that soot and melting are associated with fire damage. More soot means more heat and longer time in a fire. Another clue comes from the cracks. Cracks have features which indicate propagation direction, and the edges of a crack will change as it propagates. Initially, cracks look like, well, cracks with well-defined edges, since both sides of the crack part are effectively stationary with respect to each other. As the edges get pulled apart, however, the edges get distorted as the metal begins to tear. So-called witness marks show where objects strike each other. If you find a witness mark continuous across a crack, then it's likely that the crack happened after the impact that caused the mark. These are just a couple of examples of the dozens of clues that investigators are on the lookout for. Suspicions soon turn to the fuel tanks. Most commercial aircraft carry fuel in their wings, and the Boeing 747 is no exception. Each wing has an inboard and outboard main tank, a reserve tank towards the end of the wing, and an overflow tank at the wingtip. Between the wings, under the fuselage, is the centre wing tank. All the evidence pointed to a fuel-air explosion in this centre wing tank, which had been nearly empty at the time of the accident. One investigator was quoted as saying that the breakup had an exceptional degree of symmetry, indicating a central cause. Witness marks showed that the front bulkhead of the roughly cuboidal tank had been pushed out violently but evenly and had impacted several structural components, including the main load-bearing spar running along the belly of the aircraft. The crack propagation direction was from the bottom of the aircraft, in front of the wings, up the sides of the fuselage and meeting at the top. Now, a nearly empty fuel tank is a normal situation, and the tank systems are designed on the assumption that it will be full of a flammable mixture of fuel vapour and air. So how did it ignite? Since the FBI hadn't discounted terrorists at this point, the investigators looked for signs of a small bomb placed near the tank. While a fuel-air explosion has a lot of energy, it's a low explosive, which produces fragments with relatively low velocity. Bombs, on the other hand, are high explosive and leave characteristic high-velocity impact features, including splashback, where the edges of a hole deform against the direction of motion and the surrounding area is left relatively undisturbed, as well as telltale exit deformations and holes with melted edges. 
Of the nearly 200 small punctures identified, 25 were re-examined in detail and only two showed borderline features of high-velocity impact. This effectively rules out a bomb on board. The same analysis ruled out a direct missile strike. There would have been an awful lot of high-velocity shrapnel. Even a near miss from a missile would have left additional shrapnel marks on the side of the aircraft, and the completeness of the reconstruction of the centre section made this unlikely in the extreme. The ballistics expert is quoted in the report as saying, Based on previous testing performed by the military and the FAA, it is inconceivable that a warhead could have detonated in or near the fuselage without leaving evidence of high-velocity fragmentation damage somewhere on the recovered wreckage. Coincidentally, in the few days after the accident, the number of meteor sightings in the US was relatively high. So, leaving no stone unturned, not even an extraterrestrial one, the investigators considered a meteorite strike. Is it a meteorite if it doesn't strike the ground? No matter. Quite apart from the phenomenal chances against, one strike per aircraft per 50,000 years or more, meteorites are only hot and fast when they enter the atmosphere, and that's 50 miles or more above the ground. By the time a meteorite got to below 15,000 feet, it will be cold and relatively slow. Not a credible ignition source. If the source of ignition wasn't external, could it be internal? Was the fuel tank too hot? The air conditioning units are immediately below it and have been operating for a long time on the ground due to a flight delay. A test flight in the same conditions indicated although quite warm, about 45 Celsius, the fuel in the tank was well below its auto-ignition temperature. The fuel pump seemed okay too, but the remaining obvious source of ignition is the fuel level sensors. They're electrical. And as any regular listener to this podcast will know, electrical sparks and flammable vapour are not a good mix. To mitigate the problem, the sensors operate on extremely low power, and only very low current electrical connections are allowed in the tank. The investigators used the decommissioned 747 as the same age as Flight 800 to run some tests. Lightning was discounted quickly. The weather conditions simply weren't right. Induced currents caused by passengers' personal electronic equipment were also measured, but they were an order of magnitude too small to make a spark. Inspection of the wiring, however, in the crash plane and other 747s suggested the final answer. At least as much as it can ever be final. Much of the wiring was old, and some of the insulation was chafed through to the conductors. The low and high voltage wires should have been routed separately, but at some point during maintenance, a 350 volt cabin lighting circuit had been moved into close proximity to the fuel sensor wiring. The hypothesis that the instrumentation wiring was at fault is backed up by the flight voice recorder, which recorded the pilot remarking on a crazy fuel flow indicator a minute or so before the crash. The conclusion of the investigation was that a short circuit allowed high voltages from the lighting circuit to propagate into the fuel sensor system, and a spark then ignited the vapour. All of this is consistent with the physical evidence, it's plausible, and it has resulted in design changes to 747s to reduce the likelihood that it will happen again. So if that's the case, what was the mysterious streak of light seen by so many? With most of the fuel in the wing tanks, 
the initial stages of the accident would not have resulted in a large fireball. Only when the wing sections separated would the majority of the fuel be spilled. It's therefore possible that the light reported triggering the fireball was actually the aircraft itself. If this is the case, it's no surprise that the light travelled into the fireball, because the light was the fireball. To sum up then, what researching this case has taught me is that the investigators did an incredibly thorough job, that a thorough investigation takes time, and that during that time, people will make up their own minds about what's going on and cling to them tenaciously. So now on to some other incidents. My discussion of Korean Air Flight 902 and Flight 007 is based on a few different sources. This is a case where no single source can be considered completely trustworthy. The US military was engaged at the time in a disinformation campaign against Russia. Political elements inside the USA were trying to discredit the Reagan administration. The Soviets were trying to discredit the US externally and present the US as a credible threat internally. So in 1986, the journalist Seymour Hersh published a book, The Target is Destroyed, that claims to have a lot of inside intelligence information. His overall picture is now reasonably accepted as a true explanation, but he was speculating a bit, and not accurately, about the technical causes. And then in 1993, the Russian Federation released the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder. This was kind of interesting as vital evidence, since they'd previously claimed not even to have them. A lot of commentators even suggest that these are doctored. Normally I'd just write that off as a conspiracy theory, but the fact is the Soviets did selectively edit a number of the other electronic records at the time. So basically, here's what happens when you put all together all the sources. On April 20, 1978, a Korean Airlines Boeing 707, flight KAL-902, strayed from the Barents Sea into Soviet mainland airspace. Despite being positively identified as an Asian passenger jet by the Soviet fighter pilot who was sent to intercept it, the ground air defence officers believed it to be a NATO RC-135 military reconnaissance flight, and ordered it to be shot down. Two passengers were killed by the rockets, but the pilot managed to land successfully on an ice field. Details of this incident are very sketchy. The aircraft wasn't equipped with sophisticated navigation equipment, and the pilots must have made some sort of serious navigation error. There's a lot of he said, he said about the interaction between the fighter and the airline pilots. And under Soviet interrogation, the Koreans confessed to disobeying instructions from the fighter pilot. The Soviets were deeply embarrassed by this incident. Not so much for shooting down civilians, that was par for the course, but they were embarrassed by the fact that the jet had managed to penetrate so far into their airspace without challenge. That sets the context for 31st of August 1983, when a US Air Force Boeing RC-135 aircraft was on a reconnaissance and eavesdropping flight called a Cobra Ball mission to the east of the Kamchatka Peninsula. After orbiting for some time at the limits of radar coverage, it rendezvoused with another aircraft for refuelling, 
and then suddenly it started heading in a direct line for the Soviet mainland. The air defence commanders, expecting it to turn away like previous Cobra Ball flights, were taken off guard, and the aircraft raced across the peninsula towards the main Soviet missile submarine base. It turned out this wasn't a Cobra Ball mission, it was one of the much more aggressive river joint flights, and the air defence network, yet again, had let down its guard. Four Soviet fighters were scrambled to intercept the interloper, but it was too late. The intruder passed over the peninsula, back into international airspace where it couldn't be shot down. Three quarters of an hour later, though, it was again approaching the Soviet territory of Sakhalin Island. The air defence controllers there were faced with an intruder on a direct southwest heading. This didn't match any civilian route or usual American activity. They scrambled two fighters, and after repeated attempts to identify the aircraft in the dark, tried to attract its attention with lights and warning bursts from a cannon on board the fighter. With the spy plane about to pass again back into international airspace, the fighter was finally ordered to shoot it down and fired two missiles. The missiles exploded to the rear of the target, sending cones of shrapnel ripping through the plane. Very shortly afterward, it became clear that Soviet air defence had not shot down a Boeing RC-135 spy plane, but instead a Boeing 747, Korean Airline 007. Cal 007 was operating under autopilot navigation with a series of programmed waypoints. The INS, the Inertial Navigation System, was supposed to keep the plane pointed towards the next waypoint. For almost the entire flight, though, 007 was on a constant magnetic compass heading. There are two possible explanations for this, and we don't know which one is true. The first possibility is that the pilot simply forgot to switch over to INS mode. The second, more subtle possibility is that INS was armed, but it never engaged. If a 747 strayed outside the predefined corridor between waypoints, then INS disengaged until the plane was back inside the corridor. If INS was armed outside the corridor, it might never engage. Both scenarios involve some sort of pilot error, but an easy-to-make and understandable error. The aviation databases record over a hundred combined cases of the two mistakes prior to Cal 007 being shot down. So as a result of travelling on the compass heading, and unbeknownst to the pilots, the flight was well to the north of where it was meant to be. It crossed paths with a real Cobra Ball spy plane flight, although the two were never in close formation. Whilst the Soviets tried to visually identify the aircraft, they never tried directly to radio it on international civilian emergency frequencies. There were warning shots, but they were fired from fairly long range, and the tracer rounds would have burnt out before they passed the airliner. Effectively, the shots were just invisible from the point of view of the airline pilots. So Cal 007 was beetling along into and out of and into Soviet airspace, totally unaware of the panicked air defence controllers, the six interceptors, the bursts of cannon fire, or even the missiles. The pilots never even reported being shot down. 
For over a minute later, they were on the radio telling air traffic control that they were suffering from sudden loss of cabin pressure, and they could be heard talking on the cockpit voice recorder. Then both the black boxes stopped recording, probably due to loss of power, and the flight continued for another several minutes before it crashed into the sea. The commentary in the months and years afterwards bears an eerie resemblance to the current media reporting of Malaysia Air Flight 370. Information from various electronic sources dribbled in, as well as speculation based on the pilot's scribblings on pre-flight documents, apparent errors in the cargo manifest, theories about combinations of equipment failures and human errors that could have diverted the plane on a strange course. Only when all of the information was finally put together by Russian journalists, American journalists and the French air crash investigators who analysed the black box recordings, was the full story apparent. In early 1988, the USA was being increasingly drawn into the eight-year-long Iraq-Iran war. Iraq and Iran were targeting each other's civilian and industrial infrastructure, and US warships were defending Iraqi and Q-80 tankers. Every time the US forces failed to defend the tankers, they relieved their frustration by going on the offensive and destroying Iranian assets themselves, a sort of tit-for-tat mission. For example, on 14th of April, the USS Samuel B. Roberts hit a mine, and on 18th of April, the US retaliated with a major surface attack on Iranian ships and oil platforms, called Operation Praying Mantis. On 17th of May, the USS Stark was hit by two Exocet missiles, fired from an Iraqi F-1 Mirage. Saddam Hussein claimed that the Stark had been mistaken for an Iranian tanker. As a result of this incident, the captain and tactical action officer of the Stark were court-martialed, and they were cashiered, sent out of the Navy, for failing to defend their ship. On 8th of June, the USS Halliburton almost managed to destroy a British Airways flight. It ordered it to take evasive action straight into the path of another civilian flight. And then on July the 3rd, 1988, the US Vincennes and USS Elmer Montgomery were engaged in surface combat against Iranian gunboats armed with machine guns and rocket launchers. Captain Roberts, commanding the Vincennes, had his helicopter in the air taking fire, two ships under his command, and he was manoeuvring at 30 knots to unmask his rear gun because the front gun mount was stuck. There was also an Iranian reconnaissance plane orbiting nearby. During this time, a civilian aircraft, Iran Airlines Flight 655, took off from Bandar Abbas. The flight was ascending steadily in a civilian air corridor, transmitting a legitimate civilian transponder code, and maintaining English-language radio contact with air traffic control. They didn't respond to USS warnings on the civilian distress frequency, because those were... Warning sent to an unidentified aircraft travelling at 350 knots, and they had no reason to believe it applied to them. They were a scheduled flight in a civilian air corridor travelling at 300 knots. Somehow, and we'll never know exactly what was going on in their heads, the air warfare staff on the Vincennes managed to move from an unidentified, presumed hostile target to a confirmed 
F-14 descending on an attack profile. It's probable that on a couple of occasions during the engagement, the friend or foe systems did show a Mode 2 military signal, but never a signal that was directly attached to the civilian flight. Humans are very good at seeing what they expect to see. It's highly plausible that once they had enough clues from various things, getting them thinking that it was an F-14, they paid attention to confirmatory evidence and were unable to process the evidence that told them it was a civilian, even though all of the confirmatory evidence was just other people repeating the original mistaken information. With lots of things going on, it's also possible that the operators were paying attention to making sure that their message of danger was heard, instead of making sure that their message was correct. Just like people in a conversation focusing on what they're going to say next, instead of on what the other people in the conversation are saying. It's possible as well that a phenomenon called scenario capture was at work. Training is expensive and training time is valuable, so military exercises very seldom involve nothing happening, even though that's what usually happens on patrol. So in an exercise, what looks like a developing air attack usually becomes one rather than a false alarm. People are trained to think that they're in that dangerous scenario. It certainly didn't help that Vincennes was inside Iranian waters, with rules of engagement instructing them to presume that anything unidentified was hostile. Their training, rules, and possibly the recent experience of the Stark led them to interpret lack of confirmation that a target was civilian as positive confirmation that it was hostile. Certainly, the official report absolved them of any culpability, saying that the captain and his tactical officer did exactly the right thing with the information available, and gave only mild criticism to the console operator who passed on faulty information. Now, normally on DisasterCast, I'm pretty supportive of the idea that you shouldn't blame the operational personnel on the scene. And I think that's possibly fair enough in this situation. I would like to just point out, though, how rare it is for the people in charge to actually be that forgiving, and how the captain of the Stark was given no such consideration when he chose not to shoot down what could have been an airliner, and was actually an ally. The US was not remotely apologetic either, and went so far as to blame the Iranians for the incident. This is one case, though, where I really don't understand the conspiracy theories. The official reports make it very clear that the US put an air warfare ship inside a civilian air corridor with instructions to err on the side of shooting things down. Who needs a conspiracy theory? The only thing that could have been more culpable on the part of the US higher command was to deliberately shoot down a civilian aircraft. And if the US had wanted to send that sort of message, then there was no point in pretending it was even slightly an accident. If you do a Google search for MH17 and Iran Air 655, you'll find plenty of comparisons, either to accuse the Americans of hypocrisy, or to make the MH17 shoot down more understandable. There may be something profound to say about the parallels, but everything I can think of just sounds trite. These are numbers 6 and 7 on the scoreboard of deadliest aviation disasters, and the causes are far more social than technical. I know how to make a system safe, 
and I can make a fighting effort at explaining how to fix an organisation. Preventing Cal 007, MH17, and Iran Air 655 would require repairs to a whole geopolitical system, and that's depressingly beyond my ken. TWA-800, though. Why the hell would anyone want to believe it was a missile? We can understand wiring systems. We can fix wiring systems. Why do we want to fabricate or spread explanations that aren't explanations? It moves the tractable into the realm of despair. So on that cheery note, we're nearing the end of this episode of Disastercast. My reading this week is a fantastic fanfic called Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. It's by the same guy who writes the Less Wrong website, which is a great resource about clear thinking and applying the scientific method to everyday life. Whenever the more rational version of Harry Potter wants to negotiate with someone, he uses techniques learned from a book by Robert Cialdini called Influence, Science and Practice. That book's on my desk for the coming week. Thank you to Peter, Michael and Mike for the feedback and reviews. Thank you also to my friends at Nova Systems and DRA for internal promotion of the podcast. And welcome to the new listeners from both. A big thank you, of course, to Sean for his work on this episode. This podcast is being released on September the 9th, which makes the next episode my last from the north of England. It's likely to be another short episode, but I'll see what I can do. Till then, keep safe. <laughs>